0: Well, this morning, Pastor Al is uh, sick, gives me the, the privilege, the opportunity to, to share the Lord's Supper with you and to, to share God's Word with you. Um, I don't know, I think Al and Connie perhaps are passing back and forth some kind of, of illness that I have been lucky enough to dodge around our house. I don't know if you have done some of the same thing. I also wonder, in terms of like good days and bad you know, the, the days when we are sick those count as the bad days. Uh, I don't know uh, if you have had a, a recent Monday kind of day. Um, when I first shared some of these ideas with uh, the college students at Christian Challenge to start this spring semester, I remembered uh, a Monday kind of day that I had um, this uh, kind of winter break. I don't know if it was a Monday, but it felt like a Monday because I woke up a a little bit late. Um, I'm kind of a morning person. I like to wake up early and and spend time with God first thing in the morning. And so I don't know if I had been feeling kind of under the weather or just slept through the alarm, but I didn't have that time with God first thing in the morning. And so for me, it feels kind of like I've stubbed the, the toe of my heart. Like I have kind of a, I just feel off kilter when I start a day that way. So I had started a day kind of off and I hadn't had that time with the Lord So I thought to go kind of wake myself up before I got to work. Uh, I went to Starbucks, and this was the day after we had a little bit of snow. I don't know what day that was, but we had a little bit of snow, and the snow was still kind of stuck on the roof of my car. So I went into Starbucks, got the large coffee, 20 ounces, mixed it up just right with the cream and sugar that I like in my coffee. I pulled into the church parking lot, and I took that coffee, I got out of the car, and I went to get my bag out of the back seat. I put my 20 ounces of coffee, kind of stuck it in that snow. And you can kind of, some of you are smiling, you know what I've, uh, perhaps, you know what, what I, I've done. I put the coffee on the roof of the car, and I, I went around to get my laptop and my bag and out of the back seat. And I was kind of adjusting the bag, or I don't know what I was doing. I had my back turned to the car, and that coffee, the you know, heat on the bottom of the car, starts to melt the snow on the roof of the car. And, it, and someone in the church office could have smiled if they had seen this happen. The coffee kind of slowly migrates a couple of feet from the middle of my roof down to the edge of the car and dumps 20 ounces of coffee down the back of the... Le- I didn't even know it was happening. I just feel the coffee you know, hit the back of my pants. And so the coffee runs down my pants and down the side of my car. I think if you look at the back passenger uh, side of our Toyota. There's, you know, 20 ounces of coffee down the side of our our car still, and so I was kind of irritated that I woke up late, and then I had coffee all down the back of my pants. I came into the church. I had an important email to send. I needed to send a document to—I don't even remember what it was. At the time, it seemed like a big deal because I had about an hour to get in, do some work, and and go over to campus. So I go in, and I sit down in one of the rooms here at the church, and I opened up my laptop and started to work and I maybe got like two minutes into whatever I was doing, sending an email or attaching some document. And Microsoft, in their appreciation that I needed to get that work done that day, decided that was the moment to update whatever it needed to update. So it kind of like forces itself into the middle of my email and says, here's your update. You can't do anything about it, it'll be done in just, you know, a few minutes. And a little, and somebody who knows IT, like, I don't know, you can come and tell me what I did wrong or what I did right or why this happened, but it says, you know, in a few minutes, you'll be good to go. Well, a little bar, you know, updating the progress, it just made me more and more anxious and more and more frustrated because I'm looking at my watch thinking, I need to send this document, and and if you know me, you know I'm a little bit of a procrastinator, so I probably had to send the document that morning before I left to go meet with a student, and I had that, you know, hour or so to do it. So I'm looking at the clock, and I'm looking at the spinny bar, and looking at the clock. 45 minutes, it just spins and spins and spins and says, we're here to help you. And I, you know, kind of grit my teeth and, and walk up and down the hall, went to the bathroom three times. I don't know, just trying to figure out what would happen. And so eventually, it never finished. I slammed the laptop shut. Like, that will help. You know, if I slam my laptop, it will... Send a message to Steve Jobs that I'm frustrated, or or Bill Gates, or you know whoever. And uh, so I slam my laptop shut and, and take off. So I'm driving over to campus. I can't send my important message. And I'm still kind of wet and cold from coffee that used to be hot. And I'm not spiritually kind of on my game because I, d- I didn't get up on time. So as I'm driving to campus, these are the thoughts that were going through my mind that sound ridiculous when you say them out loud but you probably have ridiculous thoughts that you think that you know not to say as I was driving over to campus here's what I was thinking God I have important things to do God I have an important email to send I have an important day that I need to work through today which kind of means that I'm saying to God God I'm a big deal I'm important which is a ridiculous statement, isn't it? To, to kind of—it's not even not like a formal prayer, but it's the prayer of God, Creator of the universe. I am a big deal, and and don't you need reminding that I need that I'm a big deal this morning? And it sounds uh, ridiculous. It sounds heretical to to say in church that when when Mondays happen, that we're reminded. I'm reminded that I sometimes think that I'm a big deal. But I know that this is like the way we operate. I know that this is how, as humans, we can tend to think that we are the point of our own lives. One of the reasons that I know this is that I've never had to teach my children that they are the point of their own little lives, but they know it somehow. Uh, My son Samuel, here's how he expresses it to me. Someday, when I'm a grown-up, I'll tell you what to do. That's what he says to me. Usually when I'm telling him to eat his vegetables or he needs to take a bath or, you know, don't, you know, kick the soccer ball in the house, stuff like that. He stops and he recognizes he's the purpose. He's the point. He's a big deal. And when he's big enough, he'll be able to, like, enforce the fact that he is the star of the show. And I think a lot of us think that way that we are the starring actors in a drama that's unfolding, and the other people in life, they're just supporting characters. Sometimes, like in traffic, you're reminded that in this drama, conflict comes up, and you know I'm a big deal. You wait at the stop sign. You're a supporting character in this. You're, you're like, you'll be forgotten. Uh, I know that I sometimes operate that way. I have a suspicion that you do as well, that we think that we are the main thing, you know, the problem with that, as we gather together as a community of faith, is that we have to be reminded that at the heart of the, the message of Christian faith, there's this message that runs completely counter to that. It, it's a message that runs completely counter to our instinct to think that we are a big deal. I think the message of, of Scripture, the message of the passage that I want us to look at this morning, is that we are not the point Of our very lives. That we are not a big deal, we are not the point, but rather Jesus teaches that we find the point of life in loving other people well and loving God completely. And I want to look this morning at two metaphors that Jesus uses to explain this, the metaphors of salt and light, a passage of scripture that perhaps you're familiar with. And I want us to look at those and try to understand when Jesus says that you are salt, when he says that you're light, What does that really mean, and how does that change the way that we live our lives? To give you some context, maybe you can open your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. I'll give you a little bit of context of what's happening in Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' largest, like, one shot of teaching. If you have a Bible that has the words of Jesus in red, there's more red in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 than you'll find anywhere else in your Bible. So Jesus is about to give this, this significant lesson, his heart of instruction, and his instruction is about love. And I'll show you a little bit about that. To introduce his message on love, Jesus says, your salt and your light. So preparing to give the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. So salt and light, um, verses that we're familiar with, but what do they mean? I would offer this morning that, that salt, the significance of salt is that this is the purpose, the what, and the what about uh, what Jesus is about to teach in the Sermon on the Mount is, is love. So salt, when Jesus talks about salt, we, I have to think, like, why does he use this as his metaphor? What is he trying to illustrate? What is he trying to communicate? And if, if you're like me, in the 21st century, when I hear salt, I think of salt as a, you know, I go to the, the kitchen counter and I open the, the cabinet and, and there's salt. Or we think of salt as a, a seasoning or something that changes mm-hmm. the way our foods taste. This is the, you know, salt shaker out of our kitchen. Salt. Now, if you uh, read the commentators or the um, experts in... Uh, in the New Testament, there are many reasons why they think that perhaps Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Um, the the point is not necessarily what salt exactly means, but I think the point primarily is what uh, unfolds when salt is no longer salty. But I want to offer what I think is maybe the, the most significant reason why Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. And it's not because of the taste of salt or what kind of adds to food. I think that's just our 21st century way of thinking about it. If we're gonna think about salt as a a first century uh, listener, if we're a part of Jesus's original audience, what might they have understood this language of salt to mean? Well, I want you to think about where they're at and maybe what they had seen. So salt, um, just... As for information for you, salt, when uh, it's applied to meat, it removes the uh, liquid and kills bacteria. And so uh, it preserves the meat. As Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he's on a a hill. I think I have a a photo that is like modern day. Here's the, the location where they have some sense that perhaps Jesus is teaching on this hill. Looking down the hill, you can imagine, you know, huge crowds of people gathered to hear Jesus teaching. The body of water that you see in the background is the Sea of Galilee. This is the place where Jesus does a lot of his teaching and ministry. All the times when Jesus is uh, referring to they got in a boat and they traveled across the sea or they have the nets on one side and he says, take the nets out and put them on the other side. He's referring to fishing in this body of water. Now, you know, the, the 12 disciples, about half of these guys who are Jesus's right hand guys, the guys who are closest to him, about half of them are professional fishermen. That was their livelihood on this body of water. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, I think the members of his original audience of that communication are sitting right here next to a, an inland sea, some of whom are professional fishermen, and they understand that salt has this preservative power, that it kills bacteria And that when you catch, you know, hundreds of fish, like Jesus describes when he says, in the New Testament describes when Jesus says, take the net from one side of the boat and put it on the other. And it records this great catch of fish. If we were doing that in like a modern, you know, if we were out in Alaska, catching, you know, fish or crabs, those TV shows that you can watch, those great big ships are also ice factories. They catch those fish, they immediately put them in the bottom filled with ice. The disciples would pull out these fish, bring them to shore, and pack them in salt. There's a, a photo kind of like this. This is something that you can find uh, in the coastland, land, uh, really even today, anywhere in the world. If you go to South America, if you go to Asia, uh, if you go to the Middle East, even today, when they catch fish and pack it in salt, sucks out the, the liquid, it kills the bacteria, and it preserves the fish. Why would this matter? It's the difference between your food rotting in a matter of a few days Or being preserved for weeks so that you don't go hungry a month from now. So when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, it's a big deal. It lets you eat instead of starve. It lets you sell your catch instead of go without income. So when Jesus says, here's the significance of salt. He says, what is the value of salt if it's no longer salty? What is non-salty salt good for? Nothing. This, Jesus says it's, it's only good to be thrown out and, and trampled upon. It's lost its purpose. If salt is not salty, if it doesn't preserve fish, if it doesn't kill bacteria, it's kind of like uh, another mineral. It's like dirt. It's like sand. Now, I would say that the, the purpose for all of this language of salt is that, that Jesus is communicating about love. Jesus is about to teach a radical lesson about love. It's a lesson that doesn't always sound radical to us. If you've grown up around church and maybe you've heard some of the language before, it doesn't strike you as counterintuitive or countercultural. It doesn't strike you as radical language perhaps, but his message is is very radical in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. What Jesus communicates is that there's a a kind of love that they've never heard about before. Jesus is about to teach the following. You can't secretly hate other people if you're going to follow me, if you're going to follow Jesus. You can't hang on to sexual desire for the people you see around you if you're going to follow Jesus. You can't walk away from marriage even when it gets difficult if you're going to follow Jesus. Jesus. You can't manipulate your words to bring some advantage for yourself if you're going to follow Jesus. You have to love even the people who are evil, even the people who hate you, if you're going to follow Jesus. You have to give your resources away to generously give your time, your energy, your finances if you're going to follow Jesus. That's some of the message of chapter five and chapter six and chapter seven. So when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, I believe that he's saying this is how you will love, but if you do not love in this way, what good are you? The Jesus follower who does not love is like sand instead of salt, like dirt instead of salt. Um, I told the first service, I think when I was a younger minister of God's Word, um, I did things, I kind of acted first and thought about it later. So if I were a younger version of myself, I would have brought in a cooler of rotten fish, opened that cooler up, and shared with you the smell of what happens. When, When a cooler of fish has been rubbed with sand and dirt, instead of preserved with salt, we would fill the, the sanctuary with the stench of rot. Now, I know as like an older version of myself that you can think about that, that you can recall that smell, right? A follower of Jesus who does not have a love for God and others as the purpose of their life will soon begin to rot and stink if we claim to follow Jesus and don't have love, that is the stench in the nostrils of our Savior. I think that's the the heart of what Jesus is getting at when he says, you are salt. You are how I will love this world. But if you lose your saltiness, you're not worth anything other than to be thrown out. The next thing that Jesus says is that you are light. So if Salt is this love that we're supposed to have. What is the significance of light? Well, Jesus says that the light is about community. It's about how we interact with other people. Light only makes sense when we can like, observe its behavior, when we can like, share it with other people. It doesn't make sense kept undercover. And light is this love for other people. Jesus goes on to this radical lesson about love in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. One reason that this message is, is radical is that he says to, to this audience who's gathered together, your love that you're supposed to have is not a love for religion. That's a, a message that would have made sense to his audience because there are some gathered together in his audience who were professional Um, religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, if Jesus had said, you know, to love is to love the Torah, to love is to love the law, to love your religion, they would have understood, they would have celebrated what Jesus was teaching. If Jesus had said, to love is to love the people like you, who look like you, who speak like you, they would have understood, they would have celebrated, but those were not the, the heart of Jesus's message. Jesus's message in the Sermon on the Mount is that you have to love your enemy. You have to love the people that the world expects you to hate. You have to love in a way that, that costs you something, and you have to love God in a way that's whole, in a way that's complete. So, I think that this love in community is what Jesus is talking about when he says you are the light of the world. And the reason I say that is I want you to think about your own experiences with light. You know, light orients us Uh, the thought that occurred to me when I thought about how we are are oriented by the light that shines around us. If any of you have driven from uh, at nighttime from Wichita, heading up on the turnpike towards Emporia, you get to a a hill that's about nine miles outside of town, and you come over that hill at night, and you see the lights of Emporia kind of like scattered out below you in the distance. I don't know if you have, have had that experience and and have noticed that. I think the first time I noticed that was, was driving from Texas, and we had driven up. Uh, we had been living. I'd finished seminary in Texas, and we were getting ready to, to come to Emporia and start working with college students here, and so driving from, from Fort Worth to Emporia, or this stretch from Wichita into, into Emporia, you get to this point, and you know, I know now it's about nine miles outside of town. I know where I'm at. I know I'm in the right place, I know that in a few minutes that this is where I'm supposed to exit. If you forget, you have to drive another like 20 miles on and and, uh, turn around and come back, right? It costs you some time. But the light orients us. I think that if you follow Jesus, people are watching how you live. People are watching to see whether you truly love and, and, and shine. And if you don't, I think they notice that. They're disoriented. I think people are disoriented in our culture if we say, I'm a Christian, I go to church at 12th Avenue, I'm a follower of Jesus, but we don't shine in an appropriate way that orients them to where they're at. Another reason why I think light uh, matters and why Jesus is talking about light is that light seems bright in the darkest places, Um, you know, I have a a flashlight, and and you can see, like, all right, Jason has this flashlight. He's shining it on us. Like, you might remember this later that I'm, you know, I've got Aaron's uh, eyes blinded a little bit. But uh, imagine how much brighter this flashlight is. If we drive, you know, half an hour outside of town uh, in the middle of the night, you know, wait until like 11 o'clock, and we get out away from town and away from buildings, and we turn off the car and turn off the headlights, and then in the the darkness where the lights of the stars are brighter and the moon seems like a, a light shining and we shine that light it's it's bright it's bright isn't it so i think that a little bit of the love of jesus shines brightest in the darkest of places that our um, responsibility as followers of Jesus is that there are times where we gather together to like, shine together, to be encouraged, to love others, and then we go from a, a time like this into the darkest places we can find, whether that's in, in our workplace or on campus, on your dorm floor, or across the world, that we shine in places where there's darkness, that even a, a, a small light seems brighter where there's almost no light at all. I think another reason that Jesus talks about light is that hidden light, a hidden love for Jesus, it's confusing. It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. If I had uh, turned on this flashlight, but maybe, you know, pointed it over here at the floor, it wouldn't have any significance that you wouldn't have noticed it. Some of you have had this experience like I have. Your smartphone has a flashlight app on it, right? Right? and somehow that gets bumped in your pocket, and then for an hour you've illuminated, you know, your thigh with your, your smartphone. I have noticed this, like I don't even know that the flashlight app on my phone is on, and then the day goes by, and it's dark out, and I will get out of my car, and I'm like, my, my hip is, uh, is glowing because my phone is shining inside my pocket. And so if someone sees that, like, why, is your, why are you glowing? Why is your phone on inside of your pocket? It doesn't make sense. It's illogical, right? You know that this is true if you've grown up around church. You've maybe heard the, the childhood Sunday school song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? Hide it under a bushel, no, I'm going to let it shine. Now, as a kid, I sang that song with no understanding of what in the world a bushel was, right? Like, hide it under a bushel. I don't know what that is, but I know you better not do it, right? No! Hide it under a bushel, and then all the kids yell no. Um, It means you don't put the light underneath a basket. You don't take a, a lamp and hide it back underneath a covering, a bowl, a bushel. You don't light the light and stick it in your pocket. You don't light the light and hide it. I think that in the midst of of great darkness, the idea that we can somehow operate loving Jesus in silence, loving Jesus in in the privacy of our own time of devotion, and then we don't speak, we don't act, we don't live in a way that's radical in, in how we love it doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. It's a flashlight in the pocket. It's a lamp under a bushel. It doesn't make any sense. What does all of this instruction that Jesus is sharing about light and salt? What does it mean for us on Monday morning? Salt is this love. Light is the love's impact on people. If you um, love Jesus already, you love Jesus well. That you have a relationship with the Savior. Uh, Some of you, you just need to keep doing it. Take this opportunity to to pray and ask for an encouragement, a renewal, uh, maybe a magnification of, of your love of Jesus. Some of you this morning perhaps are uncertain about where you stand with Jesus this language of salt and light, um, that you understand intellectually what it means, but on a heart level, you don't know what this is about. You don't understand what it means to love in this kind of radical way, that maybe that sounds like some kind of really hard job that that Christians are supposed to do, and you don't get that. Um, Can I say to you that if you are uncertain about where you stand with Jesus, What he communicated in the first century in the Sermon on the Mount about love is true for you and for me, is true for us today as well. That Jesus loves you. That Jesus loves you even if you hate him. That the the Savior who says and, and teaches us, this is the kind of love that I want you to know about. The kind of love that's love for your enemy. The kind of love that says if you you are struck on one cheek, that you turn the other cheek as well. The kind of love that requires personal sacrifice. That the the man saying those words, teaching that lesson, is the Savior of the universe who says to us, if we are rebellious against Him, if we would strike out at, at God, He has a a love for us that's greater than that, and he invites us to recognize that we need that kind of love. We can't know the love of Jesus if we persist in thinking that we are the point. If we persist in thinking that, that the life that you have been given is about you, or that you are the star of this show, and that maybe this Jesus stuff is something you, you know, tack on to the side. Jesus says that the life centered on self, is a, a Bible word for that, and sin. Um, when we think that life revolves around us, we turn ourselves into, into idols, into gods. And that if we are willing to walk away from a self-centered life, Jesus will forgive us, give us a new life where we can love as salt and shine like light in the world around us. If that's something that you uh, are uncertain about and want to know more about, let me invite you to come and talk with me or someone on staff at the church, someone who you believe seems to shine bright and and, and gets this kind of love. And if you know the love of our Savior, let me uh, pray for you now that you would shine brighter, that you would be extra salty and extra bright in that love in the week ahead. Father, thank you that we can celebrate and remember um, the sacrifice of Jesus that he would um, sacrifice his body and blood on our behalf that he would offer a gift to us that's free, a gift to us of grace that allows us to come into right standing with you. Father, if we stand in in a right place with you, Father, I pray that you would renew in us that sense that we have been created to be salt, that we've been created to love in a radical way, just like Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and that our love would shine bright, that in the community of church, in the community um, outside of these four walls, at, at work, at school, Father, I pray that we would shine bright and that we would illuminate the community around us in the week ahead. Amen.